Good morning, church. Uh, we are picking up where we left off um, about a month ago or so uh, in our Covenant series. If you've been coming for a while, you've known uh, we started this series back in May. Um, and once a month or so, we're walking through uh, one of the covenants that we see in the Old Testament uh, because the covenants ultimately help set a framework for how we understand and read our Bible, how we understand the meta narrative of Scripture. So today we're going to focus on the Davidic covenant, uh, which is the second to last covenant that we're going to address. Um, and then realistically, we won't actually touch on the new covenant until actually the month of, of November. So we'll take a month off. But I want to open with a question. Have you ever done something for someone because you thought it was what they really wanted or needed to then find out in reality they had no want or need for the thing you did? I think I can speak for myself and probably for a lot of, of men out there. I think this is a, this is a natural tendency <laughs> in our life. Um, I can't think of how many times I think I'm helping my wife uh, by, you know, just oh, she's got dirty clothes, okay, I'll throw it in the washing machine and then not even think about it and throw it in the dryer to then find out, like, yeah, you weren't supposed to actually dry that. Now it's two sizes too small. Or the common thing where we have a lot of stuff in our house that I think should go on the walls. And so in my brilliance, I'm like, okay, well, I'll just I'll put it on the wall because it looks like it should be, go right there to find out that Anna actually had this whole design for what the wall was going to look like, and now I just put holes in the wall. You see, so often we are prone to, to think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill a need to find out that, oh, that need doesn't actually exist, or, or the need actually looks different than I thought. See, today's text, as we look at the interaction of David and God, we see that come to play. We see, we see David ultimately saying, hey, God, I want to do this for you. And God saying, hey, thank you, but no thanks. It's an interesting story, yet it is so important and pivotal for us as Christians to grasp what this actually means for us. Yet it's important that prior to diving into today's text, uh, we need to kind of catch ourselves up to speed. Uh, because last time we left off, we were with the Israelites at Mount Sinai um, as, as God met with his people and Israel was established as a nation. I mean, then we get into today's story, and there's about a 400-year gap that transpires throughout that. So hopefully in a few moments, we're going to kind of speed our way through to understand what got us from the mountain at Sinai ultimately to Jerusalem. And so as I said, the last time we're standing at Mount Sinai, God creates his covenant, establishes his covenant with his people. Yet there's, there's no real kingdom to speak of. Yet this text has everything to do with the kingdom. And so once the, once the covenant is, is made, they start heading towards the promised land that God has made evident to them. A land that he has set aside. Yet it doesn't take long for the Israelites to get back into their normal patterns of doubting and questioning God. And this doubt and questioning in the wilderness actually leads to 40 years of wandering in a desert. God ultimately says this, this generation that doubts and questions is not actually going to see the promised land. And so God waits for a generation to die off before he actually brings his people into the promised land, the land that he has set aside. And so finally, they've entered the land of God. 
God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to give them the land. And as the Israelites are prone to do, they question God. They don't actually follow all of his instructions, even in the way in which they go about acquiring the land, the way they go about breaking up the land. So they consistently break the covenant that they made with God. And that actually brings us into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is is really a story of seeing the Israelites kind of do this continuous cycle. One, they break the covenant. Two, God disciplines them. Three, they repent, they apologize to God. And then four, God raises up a judge to end up pulling them out of whatever messy situation they are in and then really providing for them a season of peace. And the book of Judges is the continual cycle over and over and over of that process. You see, the book of Judges ends with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so ultimately, the Israelites, they they look at the nations around them. And instead of ultimately wanting to be a nation set apart, they say, we just want to look like all the other nations. We just want a king. Give us a king, God. And it's important to note that, that a king was never, was never not a part of God's plan. He always said, we will, we will have a king. He makes that clear throughout the book of Genesis. God even tells Abraham that he's like, from your line, from your descendants, kings will rise up. The problem was not in wanting a king. The problem for Israel was they wanted a king that looked exactly like all the other kings of the nations around them. And so instead of waiting for God and and his timing to establish and and give them the king that he believed is the king for Israel, they said, "Ah, we'll, we'll go look for our own king. And out of that comes King Saul, tall, handsome, looks like he's got it all together. And he becomes the king of Israel. Yet it doesn't take much time before Saul fails and fails and fails and ultimately tries to step into the role of the priest, which God had never given him the role to do. So God actually removes his spirit from Saul. And through a messy array of events, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God in Israel, actually gets taken from the nation. And and it's through this that that God ultimately says, okay, I'm going to show you who ought to actually be king of Israel, the one that I have aligned, the one that God says is a man after his own heart. You see, in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so God ultimately chooses David the youngest of his brothers, in the smallest tribe of Israel to be the king, to be the man that God ultimately establishes his covenant with. And so today we enter the story, again, 400 years later from where we left, with David as the rightful king of Israel, as God's appointed king of Israel. And actually in chapter 6, so right before the covenant is established, we actually see the Ark of the Covenant brought back into Jerusalem. It is finally with the people of God. So life is good. God resides among his people. And that ultimately sets the stage for the Davidic covenant. 
And so we're going to spend our time today really unpacking those verses that Alicia read, that first half of chapter 7. And we're going to look at it in kind of two parts. We have the question and the answer. And both are posed from God's point of view. And so in verses 1 through 9a, the first half of 9, we're going to see God pose the question to David. Will you build a house for me? And 9 through the end of the chapter, we see God's answer. No, but I will build the house for you. And we're going to spend ultimately the majority of our time looking at that second half of, of what is this building of a house that God is going to do for David, for Israel, and ultimately for us here today. So we're going to begin by looking at that question. Will you guys join me um, in reading chapter 7, verse 1 through about halfway through 9? Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house? Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Israel, from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? He said, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all enemies from before you. So we enter the scene with David relaxing in his house. No enemies around being able to just sit back and ultimately reflect on the blessings God has given him. And, and it's in his mood that he decides, you know, I, I want to do something good for the Lord, which is, is a right thing, a right response. And so, so David perceives this problem. He sees, well, I, I dwell in a palace. I, I dwell in something permanent. But what about God? This, this shouldn't be. If I, if I live in a house and God lives in a tent, some kind of change needs to be made. We need to build God something permanent. You see, Israel isn't mobile anymore. And we definitely know camping isn't for everybody. And if that's the case, camping's definitely not for God. And so Nathan says, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Do what is on your heart. But then we see before David can even really present his plan to God, God responds. And you would think prior to reading that, oh, God's going to respond, you know, with a little pat on the back and be like, hey, attaboy, like, good job, David. Yeah. But we actually see a very different response from God. Instead, he asks the question, would you build a house for me to dwell in. God is ultimately saying, you, build me a house? David, please, 
ultimately, who do you think you are and, and who do you think I am? Yes, you are my servant, but, but not because I actually need you. You see, I love you and I love you dearly, but I don't actually need you to help me out. This is, this is not as much of a rebuke from God as it is a reorientation. He's ultimately reorienting David's mind and David's thoughts. And so he kind of continues to show, hey, what does this look like? Let me bring you up to speed, David. Look at our history together. Look at my relationship with Israel from the beginning. From the formation of Israel, I've lived in a tent. And for the last 400 years, I've lived in a tent. He's like, did I call any of the judges to, to build me a house? No. And, David, and then God goes even further to actually remind David of the role that he has played in his life. He says, it was ultimately me that took you as a shepherd boy from the fields and brought you to be the ruler of Israel. It was ultimately me that has been by your side everywhere you go. It has been me that has brought you to a place where you do not have enemies that surround you. It's brought me to this place of victory and rest. You see, David's desire to do something great for God was not entirely wrong here. But it's more that David forgot how great God actually is. He forgot how great of a giver he is, how great God's grace is in his life and our life. David forgot that he is nothing and God is everything. David forgot that it was by God's hand that all of this had actually come to pass, that God's plan for salvation begins and ends with him and him alone. But aren't, aren't we prone to do the same thing? Aren't we prone to think that God needs our service? I think some of us can easily slip into the mindset of, you know what, God? Like, you're pretty lucky you got me on your team. That you got me in your corner. You know, God, if we had a football team, I'd probably be the quarterback. Like, that's the mindset that I think we can so easily allow to creep in. Especially, I think, I'm, I know I'm prone to this as I look at the world around me and to see ultimately who's God made me to be and to see a lot of the, the fallenness and brokenness and destruction in the world and say, yeah, God, you got to be glad you have me and not that person. It so easily creeps into our life. You see, we might use different, different words, but the sentiment is the same. A lot of times we think God needs our help. And we think that, hey, if, if, if he meets some of our needs, then yeah, we should go out and, and kind of give back, help him meet some of his needs. We think that ultimately we are the, we are the giver in many situations, and, and God is the receiver. And like David, this is, this is not a rebuke, but this is ultimately a call to reorient our minds, to reorient our lives. Hear me. We need to rid our minds of these thoughts that God needs me, that I'm the number one or number two on his team, because we couldn't be more wrong. 
You see, we need him. The very fact that we are here this morning, breathing in and out without even thinking about it, is because of God and God alone. God is never in our debt. What we think God wants and what God actually wants, a lot of times, can be two different realities. You see, in reality, even in our giving, we are actually the ones getting. We are actually the ones receiving. We are fundamentally receivers because we are fundamentally not meeting any of God's actual needs because God doesn't have needs because he's the God of the universe. First Peter 4.11 actually states, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So even in our strength, even in our service, it is God's strength that is getting projected through us. Therefore, we ought to relate to God always in the one as one who is a recipient. I love as Piper says, God has no need for us to meet. No, he glorifies himself in meeting our needs. You see, the very gospel actually depends on God not depending on us. I mean, the famous verse, John 3, 16 states, For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son. This does not depend on us. We ultimately depend on God and his grace, God and his mercy, God and his justice, his sacrificial love that brought his son to live among us and to die for us. Therefore, in all we do, we ought to be people that praise God and give thanks to him daily. As James says, every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. May we be people who daily praise the Lord. Like, just think with me what it would look like if that was the mindset in which we walked through our day. As often as I could think to praise God, I would do it. How radically different would our lives look? And I even think from an evangelistic standpoint, if I just was somebody that was natural, naturally talked about God and praised him for the things I did, God would be on my tongue all the time. I remember reading a book on prayer, and in it he talked about this idea of living a life of thankfulness. And he gave us this story about, about a girl who took that to heart. And she was, a, she was a science major, I think, in biology. And so she started just thinking about her body and the very minute details of her body and how it's actually able to function from atoms and cells and mitochondria. And next thing she knows, she's like, all day long, I could praise God for what he had done just in my physical body of keeping me alive and allowing me to walk and think and breathe. What if we were people that lived even a smidgen of that? That not only do we think those things, but we actually voiced those praises those thanksgivings, that we would be known as a people, as a church, that, yeah, those are the people that praise God. Those are the people that are constantly pointing back in their life to God and what he has done. So I encourage you that when we rise 
to praise God. When we lie down, praise God, and everything in between. The reality is we can never overpraise God. But what if we lived as if we were trying to reach that mark? Not because by reaching that mark we've achieved something, but ultimately because God is worthy of the praise. So maybe we be people that reorient our minds. Not to say, God, you need me. But, whoa, God, I am in need of you. And let me praise you like my life actually depends on you. And then we move ultimately to God's answer of this rhetorical question. <coughs> the question God actually ultimately poses to Nathan to deliver to David. See, God provides the right answer to the question, but it's probably not the answer we would have thought if we were the ones to write the story. So let's pick up in the middle of verse 9. Says, this is God speaking. He says, I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict, afflict them no more as formerly for the time I, that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who, sure forever, who I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we actually see in the middle of verse 9 that God actually changes the tense in which he is speaking. The language moves from a past tense of this is what God has done of raising up David to a future tense of saying, this is what I will do for you. And again, we know God is faithful to keep his promises. And in this, God ultimately establishes a covenant with David. And, and if you're reading this, you, you probably have noticed the word covenant doesn't actually show up in this text. Yet the relational reality still exists. And we actually see in the Psalms that the idea of a, this being a covenant is very clearly laid out. See, in Psalm 89... Verse 3, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. 89, 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Psalm 132, it says, If yours, being David's sons, keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach him, their sons also shall sit on your throne forever. 
You see, God is ultimately answering the question by telling David, not, not what David can do for him, but what God will do for David. And this section really can be divided into kind of two different elements of this blueprint for, God's, for David's house. 9b through 11 ultimately reveals what's going to happen in David's lifetime. And then 12 through the end of the chapter actually shows David, hey, this is what is going to happen once you die, once your house continues to be built upon. And so in David's lifetime, in 9b through 11, we see three promises laid out for David. Number one, in verse 9, we see that God will make David's name great. And obviously, we're here thousands of years later, and, and David's name is great among us. And, it, and it's, it's not only because that's my name, but it's actually because it's King David's name. And he said that this would be a name that would be made great, that would be known. And the beauty of this is this statement actually points us back to the Abrahamic covenant, where God said, I will bless you and make your name great. For Abraham ultimately leads to David. And that name is great. Because that name will ultimately, always and forever, will be attached to the name of King Jesus, to our Messiah. It will always be attached to the attributes of a man after God's own heart. And two, God says, I will establish a firm place for Israel as the people of God, as, as my people. And once again, this parallels the Abrahamic covenant. As God promised Abraham land, God is really saying, hey, Israel, David, this is going to be your land that I have promised you. You see, Israel's already been put on the map, but God is looking forward to the future and saying, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to keep you safe. It's a vision of security. It's ultimately saying, I'm going to provide hope and solace in the midst of troubled times. When enemies come, you will be protected. Yet the reality is, is, as history reveals itself, is that what we see as protected and what God sees as protected can sometimes look very different. But God protects his people. It's ultimately a comforting reminder that God will never leave or forsake his people. And thirdly, we see very specific to David that, that David will experience rest from his enemies. He's in the midst of a season of rest as he's having this interaction with God, and God says, you will experience rest. I will continue to provide for you in the midst of neighboring foes. This will come to pass, David, in your lifetime. But then he goes on, and, and, he, and he points to the future. And he says, but David, there's going to come a day when you die, when you, when you lie with your forefathers. Yet the reality is your line, your kingdom is not over with your death. And so God really establishes two promises with David after his death. And they're absolutely amazing. Number one, God promises David an everlasting kingdom. See, there's a, there's a play on the word house in this text. The house that David wants to build for God is a temple, while ultimately the house that God wants to build and will build for David is a dynasty. 
You see, ultimately the temple will be destroyed, but the dynasty will live on forever. A royal family line that will see no end. And we realize that there's two ways in which that can legitimately happen. One, every male that becomes king can actually birth a male heir to continue that line forever. Or, that out of the line of David, a descendant is born who will never die. Who will never die. It's pointing to Jesus. And number two, we see this beautiful image of God saying, I'm going to have a father-son relationship with your son and the sons to come. We see very clearly that God is speaking to specifically of Solomon, David's heir, who ends up becoming the king of Israel. And, and, and as God says, Solomon will actually be the one who builds a house for the Lord, who builds the temple. Yet God also makes it clear that it is his son's job and the sons to come to obey God. To obey as a son ought to obey his father. Not in a stern, self-righteous way, but in a way in which a son says, our father says, I love my son, I know what is best for him. And so therefore, I will lead him in the way of righteousness. And so we beautifully see that, that even in the midst of potential struggles and strife and, and disobedience and ultimate, ultimately discipline, it's undergirded by the promises of the Father, the promises of steadfast love that will not depart. What can stop the Lord from fulfilling this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. For even in the midst of sin, and when the, obedient, or the disobedient one needs to be disciplined, God says, I will not remove my hand from you. And ultimately, no time will be able to stop him. No amount of time can change this. You see, ultimately, God says the dynasty won't be removed from David's house. This covenant will be fulfilled. And so we leave the establishment of this covenant rejoicing and ultimately saying, oh, the, the future is bright for Israel and the people of God. Yet it doesn't take long to begin to actually question God's plan. To actually say, when you said everlasting, did you actually mean everlasting? For just four chapters later, after God has established his covenant with David, David royally and morally fails. It's the story of Bathsheba and Uriah, where he sleeps with a man's wife, commits adultery, and then in the hopes of covering it up, has Bathsheba's husband killed on the front lines, intentionally, purposely, his own kind, his own man killed. David ultimately repents of those sins, we see it beautifully throughout the Psalms, his agony in that. Yet from that moment on, his rule never looks the same. He actually ends up running for his life from his son, from his own heir. And so David ends up dying cold 
and surrounded by concubines. It's not the best look for a righteous king. It's not the best look for the one that God says, this is through whom I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. But God's promises still stand. And so we see David's son, Solomon, become king. The wisest of kings, the one that builds the temple for God. And yet we see at the end of his life, I mean, he's the one that says, all is vanity. And yet he's the one that lived a life of vanity as his life went on. So then he's got 700 wives and concubines and just strives for wealth. He ultimately turns his back on God to foreign women and idols. But God's promises still stick. We actually see the kingdom of Israel, the very people of God, divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Brothers fighting against brothers, their own kind. Tribe against tribe. We see God raise up kings through David's line that ultimately are supposed to obey the Lord and lead the nation in Yahweh's way. But instead, they completely walk away from God. It's one of the most painful reprises in all of the Old Testament in First and Second Kings. Time after time after time, we see and read the statement. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his fathers. And in his sin, which he made, a, is, he made Israel to sin. You see, of, of 40 rulers that reigned during the divided kingdom era, where there was Israel and Judah, there was only eight good rulers. Only eight. 32 did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so as this history progresses, as we read our Bibles, we're wondering, well, where is going to be this righteous king? Where is going to be the one that God said would actually reign eternally? That these promises would come to fruition. Will God's promises actually stick? And God answers, yes. You see, the king is coming in the person of Christ. The king is coming in my son, Jesus. God is faithful to his people. He will never give up on and so we see the promise of this eternal Davidic king saturating our Old Testament. For even in the midst of a divided era, in the midst of questions and agony and being like, God, is this going to happen? We get words from Amos that speaks of a day when the booth or the household of David will rise up to the days of old, will rise up to be as David was, a man after God's own heart. Or we think of the famous prophecy that so often we read at Christmas time from Isaiah. It says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
We're looking for this one to come. And trust me, Mighty God was not a popular baby name back then. We're looking for God himself to come among his people. You see, Isaiah expected a Davidic king, a future heir, to be one that comes and is eternal. And so we enter the New Testament eagerly awaiting the arrival of this righteous king. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, just as David prophesied, I mean, as Isaiah prophesied. And in the very first chapter of Matthew, the very first chapter in the New Testament, we get a glimpse of who this king is that we've been waiting for. For we read the genealogy of Jesus, and it points back to King David. And we progress through Jesus' life. And as he enters Jerusalem, as he turns his head toward the cross, during Holy Week, the crowd shouts, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The very people that would crucify him a few days later were also the ones proclaiming him as the son of David, the one we had been waiting for. Yet the reality is Jesus did not come as a king to to overthrow human rulers and authorities in the government. No, he came to overthrow the spiritual forces of evil. He came to overthrow and defeat death once and for all. As one commentator states, he, Jesus, was born to die and raised to reign. He is a king who didn't send orders from his throne, but rather walked into battle for his people. His death was the death of death. His victory was our victor. His kingdom is our kingdom. We see the rightful heir of David in Jesus Christ. Yet instead of an inauguration ceremony, he is beaten and mocked and condemned as a blasphemer. And instead of a crown of jewels, he was given a crown of thorns upon his head. And ultimately, instead of sitting on a throne, he was nailed to a cross. So Jesus beautifully and sacrificially hung on that cross. And the beautiful God-ordained irony is that as he hung on that cross, He had a sign over his head that said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And so Jesus died mocked as king of the Jews, and three days later rose ultimately as king of the world. He is the king we need because he is the king that we can never And it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. As Colossians says, he being God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And as this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the righteous heir of God, this kingdom is For the Son of God 
even in death, does not die, but reigns supreme forever. For what is bound in God will never be unbound. Praise be to King Jesus. You see, this is great news for us. This covenant is absolutely beautiful. It points to our king. But this news is also transformative for us in how we live our lives. Because it forces us to sit in the reality that Jesus is king. Jesus is king of our lives. And, and what does that actually mean? First off, pretty clearly, it means that we are not kings. We are not queens. This is not a divided kingdom. I'm not a, a mini king, but Jesus is king, and I sit under his reign. And the reality is many of us want to be kings or queens. Some of us want to be the king or queen of our workplace. Some of us want to be the king or queen of our home life. Some of us want to be king or queen of the road, and every time we get in the highway, we say we rule. And for me, it might just be, I just want to be king of my fantasy football league. The reality is we all have desires to be kings and queens in our lives. Yet as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Do you have two masters? Do you make yourself king or queen of your life? And God's actually your little servant or helper boy that comes in when you, when you need something. Or do we actually say, God, you are my king, and I will be devoted and humbly serve you. You see, our struggle for kingship happens every time we say, we know better than you, God. Every time we look at scripture and say, hey, that doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll skip that part. Or every time we sin against God, against brother, against sister, and don't actually repent, don't actually turn back to God. Every time we place our opinion and desires above God, we're ultimately saying, I'm king, and you are not. This is a daily struggle, and this will be a continual daily struggle. But we need to be people that set our gaze to Jesus, to look to him as king of our life. For he is the perfect, righteous, and loving king. In every way that I fail, and I do it daily, in trying to create my own kingdom, Jesus never fails and never will fail. He is the faithful king who forever meets the needs of his people. You see, to view Jesus as king ultimately leads to us striving to live out the realities of really this last month and a half we've spoken of the parables. So much of those parables talk about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And so to allow and to, to recognize Jesus as king is to point us in the way of Jesus' teachings. And Jesus is our king. But this kingdom is not of this world. We're ultimately citizens of heaven. And so we can actually rejoice in the here and now, even in the midst of brokenness, knowing that restoration will happen. So Jesus King means we can step out in faith and take risks for him. 
because we know that he has already grasped us and will never let us go. Jesus is king means we can stand up for truth because we know Jesus is our king and his ways are true. Jesus is king means that we can lay our anxieties at his feet for he says he bears our burdens and he gives us peace. Jesus as king means we can sacrificially use our resources, the resources God has blessed us with because he's already provided for all of our needs. Jesus as king means we can renounce all this world has to offer because Jesus offered himself. Jesus King means we don't need to detail every part of our life for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years because he has already gone before us and he will lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus King means we can confidently rest in the fact that all things work together for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who call him Jesus King means we can wholeheartedly say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, he, he is not the king we deserve, but he is the king that we so desperately need. He is the only good and worthy king. And the beautiful thing is, he is our king. I'm going to close our time uh, by, by reading part of Psalm 72, for it beautifully speaks of our Lord and Savior and King, speaks of Jesus Christ. Uh, the words will be on the screen, so read with me. Long may he live. May gold to Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessing invoked for him all the day. For there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains, may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name, the name of Jesus, endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Lord God.